Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's Unoriginal Podcast. I'm A.F. Tanith, and today I'm covering Umbrella Academy Season 3, Episode 6. And for once, it's not going to be a rant. Mostly. But, um, quick cue before we get started. Is Harlan fucking dead? Because he's looking a little dead right now. But I suppose that's an issue for the next episode to deal with. Right now, we find ourselves in flashback. It's 2014 in the Sparrow timeline, and Pogo is training the Sparrows. We see Ben sparring with Jamie, and Ben is just doubling down on being the worst piece of shit that he can be. I hate him, I want to be done with him, and I am simply finished with this choice that the writers have made for him. But while Jamie and Ben's are the ones literally sparring here, it's Pogo and Reginald who are having the truly pivotal fight. Pogo is arguing for the children's well-being, but Reginald is determined to be the same abusive piece of shit he always is. And Pogo, well, apparently Pogo cannot take it. He leaves the academy, but not without giving Marcus and the Sparrows the pills that they've been using to drug Reginald. I suppose this means I should believe they were really drugging him against his will, not that it was part of some larger scheme. But I don't know for sure that I buy it completely. Either way, though, the crux of the argument is important. Pogo and Reginald are fighting over whether or not the Sparrows should be, quote, sent to the other side, and I find myself wondering once again if perhaps the Kugelblitz might not be a black hole so much as it is a wormhole. I think it's more likely that Hotel Oblivion, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the obvious other side, and the Kugelblitz are not related in that way. But I'm not wholly convinced of either possibility yet. Pogo does specifically say something to the effect of it's happening when he finds out about the Kugelblitz, after all. In any case, though, I think the real question of this scene is what the fuck Pogo is playing at. If Pogo had drugs that the Sparrows could use against Reginald at literally any time, why the hell did he wait till now, and why the hell did he actually leave? Why not refuse? Why not stick around, keep an eye on things, and continue nurturing the children after they've gotten Reginald out of the way? Surely there must be more to this than we've seen. And where the fuck did those pills come from in the first place? And what exactly is it that they do? Back in the present, though, Pogo is trying to elude Five. The reference to another timeline brings Pogo up short, but he still doesn't offer any information. He flees on his bicycle, forcing Five to steal someone else's to follow. And then the Kugelblitz surges again, no doubt wiping out even more people. Its wave goes right past where Allison and Harland are waiting around for Victor, and Harland quite indelicately drops a line so obvious that it's not even foreshadowing. He can hear everyone's vibrations, and Allison's, hers is wrong somehow because Allison herself is wrong right now. She's coming apart at the seams. It's a pity, then, that no one else seems to comprehend how bad her mental health has truly gotten. When Victor shows up, he and Harlan get to it, in spite of Allison's ominous warnings about imposing a time limit on them. She's giving them until tonight, at which point she's going to unapologetically rumor Victor into doing what she wants. And Victor seems to think that she's joking, or perhaps that this is far friendlier and far less threatening than it truly is. And back at the White Buffalo suite, Lila cannot find Stan, who, we will soon find out, is not actually her child. That isn't terribly surprising, but it's manifesting in, like, the least interesting way possible, so here's hoping there turns out to be more to this twist than this episode alone implies. As for Luther, poor stupid Luther is stress-eating in Sloane's bedroom, and even this relative stranger can tell that something is wrong but the writers do not permit him to actually express what has happened to him. The closest he gets to sharing his pain is to tell her that he got into a couple of fights with his siblings, and that is not at all enough. That is not an acceptable way to handle what happened to him. 
in-universe, sure, it's fine. That may very well be how Luther perceived what happened to him. In the hours since his assault, he might genuinely have already convinced himself that it was no big deal. Victims of all genders do it all the time. But metatextually, this is simply not acceptable. Y'all, you writers, y'all chose to include a sexual assault in your narrative, and now you're going to have to fucking deal with the consequences with maturity and consideration and respect, or I, for one, am never going to let you hear the end of it. Get your shit together, you utter dorks. Anyway, Faye shows up to interrupt the scene, and she's far and away the most tolerable of the sparrows at this point, so if I have to see more of these annoying fucks, can we shift focus onto her instead of Ben, please? But then we're back to Lila. She and Diego still can't find Stanley, but they are finding cockroaches, and I swear to god, I have this memory of someone stepping on a cockroach before in this show. I think maybe I'm actually taking something from another show and inserting it into this one in my recollection, but does anyone else know if I'm right? I really truly think I have a memory of the handler stepping on a cockroach, or something like that. Have we seen an a slightly out-of-place, conspicuous roach before, maybe getting stepped on, in this show? Or am I just thinking of the roaches that were always showing up in the first season of Heroes? Either way, though, Diego and Lila's search leads us to finally find the so-called mystery tunnel that I was pissed they didn't find in the previous episode. It's this long, mystery-spot-style corridor that leads to an equal and opposite white buffalo suite. It's straight up got a white buffalo's ass on the wall where the white buffalo's head is supposed to be, and I had a brief moment of wondering whether they might have somehow wandered into another timeline, perhaps even the original one or if they genuinely just traveled across the world to Japan by walking down a hallway. But before we find out what's actually afoot, we're back to Victor, Allison, and Harlan. Harlan is trying to show Victor how to potentially take the power back from him, but the attempt is so painful for Victor that Allison intervenes on his behalf. She tries to rumor Harlan, but it doesn't work. Harlan isn't even phased by her attempt. Until the CGI effect that Victor and Harlan borrowed from Harry and Voldemort expands to encompass Allison, at which point Allison's eyes glow an ominous orange, which seems to amplify her powers. And that's going to be a big deal sometime soon, I'm very sure. In fact, it could be the moment that turns Allison from a rapidly falling hero into a full-blown villain. In any case, she rumors Harlan into letting Victor go without the I heard a rumor catchphrase, but she's too busy trying to talk sense into Victor to really process what just happened. She insists that Victor's behavior is inexplicable unless there's something she doesn't know, and unfortunately, there is some truth to that idea. There is something that Victor is hiding from her. Victor still hasn't told anyone that he knows Harlan was behind the deaths of the moms. But Allison doesn't even suspect that yet, and Victor's refusal to confess any aggravating circumstances to the situation comes across as a rejection of Allison herself. And we saw how well Allison handled her last one. That is her whole thing right now. She's not saying it outright, no, but that's what her problem truly is, as far as I can tell. Right now, Allison's psyche is one big mess of guilt and shame and frustration and powerlessness, and yes, loneliness, that real and perceived rejection can only possibly make worse. Her mental health is in freefall, and she's responding in the worst way possible to things that she would normally be able to handle. 
though I do think that even under normal circumstances, she still wouldn't have handled the Harlan reveal very well. But back at the Academy, Sloane assures Luther that she's got his back, and then immediately leaves him to Ben's mercy when Ben tells her to. Honestly, I really can't stand Sloane at this point. She's not as infuriating as Ben, no, but she's boring, and she's weak, and she makes really bad decisions. She has wanted for a long time, apparently, to leave the Sparrows. She feels trapped with them. But now she's dragging Luther into this obvious cult instead of trying to use him as an opportunity to make an escape herself. It's absurd, and it's rather immoral. You know this is practically a hostage situation that you're living in, and your bright idea is to trap your new boyfriend in it, too? Get the fuck out of here with that. And as for Luther's response to Ben's questions about, quote, your family's weird brother Ben fetish, is hella dumb. The idea that the previous timeline's Ben is buried somewhere deep down inside this new Ben, that is batshit crazy. That is super not how this works. We as humans are the sums of both our bodies and our experiences. Our bodies are what start us off. That's the nature of the equation. And then our experiences shape for us the rest of our lives, and that's the nurture part. Umbrella Ben and Sparrow Ben are two different people, period. They have the same body, but they have different experiences. One is not inside the other, and there's no reason to believe that the potential to be Umbrella Ben is contained within 30-plus-year-old Sparrow Ben. Your experiences change your body. That's just science as far as we understand bodies right now. All we know for sure in this situation is that the potential to be Umbrella Ben or to be Sparrow Ben was inside Baby Ben. Under Reginald's tutelage, Ben could become either his umbrella self, or his sparrow self, or even someone else entirely, depending on other circumstances, including who his siblings were. But there is no reason right now to believe that Umbrella Ben's kindness, such as Luther perceives it, lies hidden in Sparrow Ben's heart. That's just not how it works, and I will be disappointed in the show if they try to assert otherwise. Also, a bit disappointing is that Ben's plan to, quote, merge the families is beginning to work. He gives Marcus's suit to Luther, telling Sloane that he'd rather have Luther with him than against him, and Sloane can't seem to wrap her mind around why Luther might not want that. I swear, it's like watching someone get recruited into a cult. And I am begging Faye to kick Ben's ass right into the Kugelblitz at this point. What a fucking nightmare he turned out to be. But elsewhere in the world, Five has managed to follow Pogo home. There is a not-subtle undercurrent of classist weirdness that's happening in this scene, with some bestiality sprinkled in for flavor, and, um, well, let's just pretend we haven't noticed, shall we? So we don't have to have a whole big conversation about it. It's there. We see it. Let's move on. So Five and Pogo sit down for a chat, and Pogo has some shit to say about symbols. Sigils, in fact. And, um, well, I've listened to last podcast for over a decade at this point, so when I hear the phrase sigil in conjunction with magic, I don't know, maybe it's got other connotations to other people, but all I can think of is, like, the Chaos Magic Reddit interpretation, which is gross, and I think we should leave it at that. In any case, these sigils are apparently related to Project Oblivion, and that's hardly the first time we've heard about Oblivion in this show. Founder 5 mentioned it, Lila and Diego appear to be visiting it, and Reginald very suspiciously groaned the word out in his supposed sleep. 
and speak of the devil. Klaus is once again visiting Reginald, and I warned you guys that we needed to stay on this guy's ass. I told you I was not buying that he was some kind of a changed man. He wasn't changed. At the absolute most, he was being suppressed. And now he says that he's feeling like himself again because he's off the pills, and himself, I will remind you, is a right evil bastard. He listens patiently to Klaus's story about having been killed and experimented upon by his dad, and then he stands up, lures Klaus in under false pretenses, and begins a violent experiment of his own. I fully hope that Klaus gets to kick his ass, but I have no faith in that possibility. As for Hotel Oblivion, this is where we find Diego and Lila looking for Stan. Lila seems to have good instincts about this place. The sign says not to ring the bell, and for once in her entire life, she obeys a rule. Which is odd, because she is chaos personified. This woman lies like she breathes, for little to no reason, and she doesn't have an empathetic bone in her body. And while I am far from Diego's biggest fan in the world, he needs to not run but sprint his ass away from this woman. Lila is genuinely insane. I had thought that if and when the Stanley reveal came, it was going to be this whole huge thing. I thought he was going to be like, I don't know, a murder bot, or a Thames Commission assassin in training, or a goddamn golem or something. I never, for a second, considered that he might just be some other random woman's child that Lila was using to test Diego's paternal nurturing abilities. And that Lila's response to realizing she approves of Diego's fatherly instincts is to fuck him... Countdown to Lila holding a positive pregnancy test. Spare me. But while we're on the subject of this plotline, I want to tentatively argue in its favor. Now, as always, I do not think that it's fair to judge a story before you've seen the end of it. I will repeat it until I die. The ending of a story teaches you how to understand the rest of it. The end of a story can recontextualize the plot, clarify themes, and deliver last-minute twists. You cannot truly judge a story until you know where it ends. So when I say that I want to argue in favor of this plotline, I mean that I want to argue in favor of giving it the benefit of the doubt. We have not yet reached its conclusion, and further beats and twists may offer further insight. For now, though, I want to look at what the plotline has actually done so far. If Diego and Stanley are not actually father and son, that changes the specifics of their bond, but it doesn't change the fact that they have one. Stanley being someone else's kid does not change the fact that Diego has been acting as a parental figure toward him. Diego has been trying to nurture him, trying to model good behavior, and trying to provide discipline and love and something vaguely resembling safety. He's not done a phenomenal job of it, no, but his trying this season has been his character arc. His character development so far this season has been largely about trying to grow into a better father than his father was to him. And even if he never sees Stanley again, which seems possible given that Stanley just got blipped, well, he'll still have that character development. He will still be a better man, a better potential father, because of the way he grew over the course of this plotline. Unless, of course, Lila's crazy ass manages to ruin this for him. And knowing her, she might. And that stutter when he finds out that Stanley has been lying to him? Again, I am far from a huge Diego fan, but that shit is fucking heartbreaking. Though at least I finally understand how the fuck these two brown people made a little white child. They didn't. Back to Pogo. 
Apparently, Reginald intended to send the Sparrows into oblivion in a suicide mission from which Pogo was sure they would not return. What they intended to do there? That I'm not entirely sure. I'm not even clear on what Hotel Oblivion is, honestly. Is it a pocket dimension? A dead timeline? Some kind of eldritch abomination? Dino and Lila's fight through the hotel really does give eldritch, after all. And I adored every second of it. But before we get there, we have to deal with Harlan and Victor and Harlan's marigold, which sounds like a euphemism, but isn't. Not in a gross way, at least. If I'm understanding him correctly, Harlan refers to his internal perception of his power as a marigold, relating his powers to the way that bees sense pollen. It seems like a weird choice, and I hope it's more meaningful than at first it appears, but for now, I suppose I will just have to shrug and move on. Any which way about it, Harlan's odd little speech actually gets through to Victor. You need to stop listening with your ears, he advises, and instead, listen with your marigold. Perhaps this is a reference that I'm just not familiar with, and not something the writers made up. There is definitely stuff going on here with autistic neurodivergence that I am not at all equipped to analyze or to speak on, and I would expect, perhaps, that viewers with autism have a different experience of this scene than I do. If any listeners on the spectrum have anything relevant that they would like to share here, feel free to let me know. And not too far away, though, we find Allison. Her mental health issues are taking a turn for the TV show, if you know what I mean. She is experiencing her first truly psychotic symptom. She's sitting on a swing set, hallucinating a young Ray trying to comfort her, but it's not enough to help her to really get to the crux of her issues. The show is making a gesture toward racial trauma here, trying to highlight that part of Allison's experience this season is triggering PTSD, heavily related to activists and other people of color, simply disappearing as if they were never there in the first place. But, well... Perhaps it's my whiteness speaking, but I'm not getting the sense that this is actually the crux of her issue. I'm getting the sense, if I'm being perfectly honest, that this is what she wishes her struggle were as simple as. This is a relatable struggle, and Allison's real struggle is a lot less relatable than that. The way I perceive it right now, based on what she's done this season, is that she is a fundamentally overpowered character, practically a god for what her abilities let her do but that right now she is facing a problem that her powers cannot help her solve. She's facing a problem that she is powerless to rectify, and she's unimaginably frustrated both at her own powerlessness and the underwhelming, from her perspective, responses of the people who could help her solve it. And beyond that, the worst part is that Allison clearly fundamentally feels like this is all her fault. She feels like she is the one who erased Claire from existence, and that guilt must have an unimaginable weight. And I think Allison is trying to cope with it, specifically by relating it to what she went through in the 60s. And why wouldn't she? It makes sense. She survived the 60s. She knows, she always knew, how the 60s and its civil rights movement would play out. If this situation is like the 60s, then it is awful. It is filled with pain and struggle and despair, and there will be loss. But it will all work out to a certain sense of satisfaction in the long run. And so my pet theory right now is that in-universe, Allison is avoiding looking directly at her suffering and refusing to consciously see it for what it actually is. She would rather reduce her struggles to just the leftover trauma from what she endured last year, because that's more understandable and rational and easier to cope with than the guilt of admitting that she ruined her relationship with Claire and she erased her from existence. Not anyone else. Then again, 
from the perspective of the writers, well, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if it does turn out that they do think this is all just Allison having racism-related PTSD. I don't know how much I trust that they are able to write a nuanced, complicated story in the way that I'm trying to give them credit for. And besides, it's not like I'm trying to say she does not have racism-related PTSD on top of everything else she's struggling with. She definitely does. It's definitely a compelling storyline. I just don't think it's her biggest problem right now. But again, Black viewers, especially ones who were alive in the 60s and 70s, you guys might have a wildly different interpretation of this than I do. Feel free, of course, to share if you would like. So, when Allison's hallucination ends, though, we find the world has gone dark. She rushes to Victor's aid, but there's nothing she can do right now. Victor and Harlan have floated up into the air, and their energy surges as a storm rages all around them. And I really wondered if this was going to kill Harlan. Until Victor reabsorbs his power, and everyone is shown to have survived. Though they're definitely a bit worse for the wear. Not as badly off as they're about to be, though. Victor is asleep in the aftermath of what happened, and Harlan makes an enormous mistake. He alludes to what happened with the mothers, because he thinks that Victor kept his word and broke the news to the other umbrellas. Except Victor never did, and he never even bothered to warn Harlan. So Harlan confesses to Allison because he thinks that's the right thing to do, and he doesn't realize that even if he's right, that doesn't make it a safe thing to do. He confesses to Allison, and all she hears is that there is finally someone someone other than herself, to blame for Claire's non-existence. And so the next time we see Harlan, he's stuffed into her trunk to be delivered to the sparrows, and I cannot tell if he's just been mind-controlled into submission, or if this man is straight-up dead. But there's one more thing before we go. The reveal of Harlan in the trunk is the final beat of the episode, yes, but before that, we deal with Lila and Diego. They're trying to leave the Hotel Oblivion, only to find out that they cannot. There is white oblivion outside the front doors of the building, and going out only takes them back in. And Diego decides to ring the bell in spite of Lila's warnings. And the blue and white lighting of the place goes eldritch, yellow, and gold. Yellow and gold are delectable horror colors, and I admit that my mind is drawn back to when Klaus was dead. Before he realized his immortality, there was just a single color in the entire black and white world yellow. But we have bigger things to think about than colors right now. There are whispers and footsteps and rumblings in the hotel, and we do not ever get a good look at what it is that's chasing Lila and Diego, but it is undeniably humanoid, and it chops off two of Diego's fingers with a strange, scythe-like weapon made of gold. Lila and Diego run, their pursuer on their heels, and they leave Diego's fingers behind as they flee back into the proper world. It's all very Coraline, from the slightly off but mostly identical hotels and the vast white nothingness outside, to the long corridor between the worlds and the monster banging on the door to be let in. Though I do doubt that this is the other mother who just cut off a sizable portion of Diego's hand. And then, two fingers lighter, they turn around to find Stanley casually snacking, apparently safe, before promptly disintegrating as the Kugel wave rolls by. And so our episode ends. It appears that Luther and Allison are both now with the Sparrows, but honestly, who cares? What's interesting right now, to me at least, is what the fuck is going on at Hotel Oblivion? 
What is it? What's in there? It all screams eldritch abomination, and Lovecraftian shit is some of my absolute favorite shit, and this is where I will be investing all of my remaining hope for this season. Make this oblivion shit good, and I will forgive you your flaws. Sate my thirst for cosmic horror, and I will be willing to overlook a lot of stupid shit. So, that is episode six. It was not as infuriating as the previous one. I didn't have anything enormous to rant about, and and like I said, I am always delighted by the introduction of anything resembling Lovecraftian horror, cosmic horror, eldritch abominations, eldritch locations. I love it all. I love those tropes. Love that entire little subgenre of horror. I want them to lean very hard into this. And I don't know that they will, but it is a delightful little... I don't know, potential that the show has just given me. It is a crumb of potential in a sea of like, okay, well, I'm watching, love these characters, having fun, I guess. But this could herald lovely things. It really could. Um, I love the use of gold and yellow specifically in cosmic horror. I just, I love it. I love it so much, and I am going to keep my fingers crossed that this is a vibe we can really go hard into, because that's what this show largely does. This show has been wandering through various vibes all throughout its run, um, and if we're getting ready to wander into cosmic horror, I will be delighted, the same way I was delighted back in the beginning when the vibe of the show was, do you guys remember when MCR was at its height? I remember. And I do. I do remember that. That was very fun. I mean, it was a horrible time of my life, but, you know, the vibe of the culture was fun. And so seeing a throwback to that in like, I don't know, 2019 or whatever it was, 2017, something like that, that was fun. It was a lot of fun. And if now we move into the cosmic horror vibe, that's also going to be extraordinarily fun. Um, obviously, I don't know that that's what we're going to do. I am still very unclear on where exactly this you know, season is going to end up. I still have the theory that we're going to be doing a thing of cycling back around to the beginning, um, that this apocalypse and its time travel is going to be averted by actually going back to the first season and trying to avert things properly this time. Um, but I don't even know if that's something that's actually possible to do right now. We would probably have to go back to the 60s first and fix things there and then go forward and fix things again. And I don't know if anything like that is possible. So the actual solution to this could be much, much bigger, much more tangled, much more of an enormous mess. So I don't know. I don't know for sure what it is that we're going to be doing. But what I do strongly suspect at this point is that whatever happened with Allison when she stepped into the Priori Incantatum bubble that Harlan and Victor found themselves in, I suspect that it was a moment of evolution for her powers. Um, not in a scientific sense, in a Pokemon kind of sense. Um, it is a step up. It is her powers growing, her powers being amplified. And Based off of how her character arc has gone so far this season, I can only imagine that power amplification is going to result in, you know, villainy amplification. I can only imagine the way that she has struggled with her powers 
and the ethics and morality of them so far, if you straight up remove the slight restraint of having to use the phrase, I heard a rumor, she's going to get a lot worse. But perhaps if she ends up in a situation where any random thing she says could become something that has to be listened to, then she's a Kilgrave character. But she's a Kilgrave character that spent the first two seasons, at least, as a nominal hero. And so she may get to be a Kilgrave character that actually gets a redemption arc. Having the handicap of the I heard a rumor phrase removed could be the thing that finally forces Allison to get a handle on her powers such that it's not her will and her whims in control, and instead it's her morality and empathy. And I hope that gets to be the case. I will not be upset if we do move into a space of allowing Allison a redemption arc. But as I said before, and as I will continue to say, I will not be pleased if Allison gets an arc dealing with the consequences of what she did on her end, and Luther does not get an arc dealing with the consequences of what Allison did to him on his end. If we're going to handle the effects of this, and we must, ethically speaking, we have to handle it for both of them. And we have to handle it in a way that primarily centers Luther's experience. Because Allison is not the victim of what she did. So, with all of that said, I am going to be, of course, back in one week's time with my coverage of episode 7. If you are interested in hearing that, I hope you will join me again then. In the meantime, you may be interested in my reaction videos. I will be filming the reaction video to episode 7 very shortly. My Umbrella Academy reaction videos and plenty more are available to $5 patrons, released on a weekly schedule, or to $10 patrons released as soon as they are filmed. Alternately, $1 and up patrons get access to polls, helping me decide what it is that I will be watching after Umbrella Academy and Stranger Things. And if you are not at all interested in the Patreon, that is perfectly all right. Perhaps you would be interested in leaving me a rating or a review on your favorite podcatcher. Or you could just talk about the show, that is also very much appreciated. And, of course, the most appreciated thing is just that you keep listening. So if you are enjoying this show, I hope you will join me again next week when I cover Umbrella Academy Season 3, Episode 7. And as always, thank you so much for listening.